Greetings in Jesus' name, the king of that kingdom that um, Tim was talking about in his letter. And greetings to the visitors. It must be uh, writer's weekend or something again. <laughs> see a lot of visitors here. And uh blessing to see you. Could someone partly close this blind here? It's in the eyes here. Also, thank you for the part of the service that's already, like Joshua shared and some of the others. And uh, trust the Lord has spoken to our hearts already. It might be the morning for a relationship because my message is sort of hinged that direction also. In fact, I thought Joshua was going to share my verse, but he didn't. He went a few verses down. So why don't we just pause for a word of prayer. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for seeing us through this last year. Yes, we had many experiences, Lord. Not all of them, Lord, were experiences we would have chosen. Lord, some of them were our own doing. Some of them are your chastening. Some of them, Lord, all of them, Lord, according to your word, were for our good. Lord, we accept that and we believe that by faith. And Lord, our eyes are upon you as we think of this next year. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would grow closer to you. And Lord, that uh, the sanctification of our own hearts would be more complete. And Lord, that our service for your kingdom would be more profound. Lord, you are the Lord of the changing and ageless years. You are not affected by time. We are, but you are not. You're outside of time. But you entered into time and entered into our hearts and are very much involved in our lives. And we thank you for that. Pray, Lord, this morning that you would guide us in this service. You would speak to us. That, Lord, that we would, that the first day of this year would be one day of growing in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is a new year. My mind was on that. Uncharted. Undeveloped. Unknown. Unconquered. This new year. 365 days, 8,760 hours, 525,600 minutes, 31,536,000 seconds. That's my calculations. That's how long the next year is. It's the gift of time. What is time? This last week, Stephen and I were going through a science and we studied matter. Matter is anything that has weight and takes up space. Does time weigh anything? Does it take up space? Is it real? We learned in a science book that there are some things that are real that don't that aren't matter. Scientifically, on the um, let me see, uh, if you are a materialist, secular materialist, actually that can't be true because there's nothing real that isn't matter in space. But the fact is, it is. We measure it, time. We waste it. We kill it, we find it, and we make it. Do we really? You say we make time, right? Do we really make it? Interesting how we talk sometimes. 
But time is real. And it's a gift given to us from our God. Actually, it's not an outright gift because your time is, it's, it's given to us, so in that sense, it's a gift. But it's not an outright gift. You've probably heard the phrase, time is money. Now, and you have money, you have possession, is it yours? Well, yes, it's yours, but is it really yours? No, you are a steward of it. There's an accountability that comes to us when you get whatever gift you have from God, there's an accountability to it. Because God is Lord, and so when he gives you something, it's yours, but he is expecting something. So, that's a steward. You you have money, you earn it, you spend it, but you are a steward of it. I don't know if you think of it that way, but you are, and you will be accountable to it someday. And a steward does not own anything. He is to make his master a profit. He is to do what his master wants done without ever is given to him. So, yes, we have time, but it's given as a stewardship. And then he directs us to redeem the time for the days are evil. How are we going to do that in 2017? How are we going to redeem the time? Last year, I had the first message in 2016, and I had three points as goals for Oasis. I thought I would go over those goals because... Probably most of us forgot them. <laughs> Goal number one was love God supremely and above all else. That's a goal. Number two for Oasis is to have solid, authentic conversions. Number three, to have principled separation from the world unto God. Now, those aren't goals for 2016. Those are permanent goals. And, of course, they are not exhaustive goals. We haven't talked about family. We haven't talked about evangelism. We haven't talked about um, many, many things. But those are just three specific goals. Some people have a theme verse for the year. Some businesses actually make a theme for the year. This year, we will focus on customer service or satisfaction. Or on being a team member. Or this year, we're going to focus on safety. Now, a business is always desiring these qualities. But for a time, either for a month Or for a year, one particular focus is held up and with an emphasis. And the desire is is that emphasis becomes ingrained in the character and experience that it becomes a normal part of life. And then the next year you can go on to something else. So there's a focus. A permanent change in attitude and behavior. And next year, another emphasis takes place. This morning, I want to talk about several verses that I could propose as theme verses for us. You can turn to Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. This is where I thought Joshua was going to read my verse, but he went a little bit further down the chapter. Verse 9, let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. 
how would these verses be a focus and an emphasis for the year? Suppose God, or we would allow God to imprint these truths in our hearts, these verses in our hearts, that they become a normal, common, routine experience of my life. And from the lives of our brothers and sisters, what if the reality of these verses in our hearts would produce a permanent change in attitude and behavior? What if? Now, some of you might say, well, that's already where I'm at. That's what I've been doing for years. It's just these other people around here that have these problems. I'm glad you're finally talking about it. We really need that around here. Hebrews 13.1 has a similar cogent statement. It's short and to the point. It says, let brotherly love continue. What it says in the Greek is, Philadelphia, let be. <laughs> and the verse that we read here in Romans, agape, let be without hypocrisy. Could you imagine a family or a marriage or a church? If only these verses would be graced in our heart that there would be a normal common experience of our lives. Just think of that. So to begin our study this morning, we begin by asking, what is love? Well, everyone understands what love is, right? Well... Someone did a survey and asked individual people if they think they're a good driver. And the percentage of people who said they are a good driver was way up in the 90% plus range, way up there. Then they asked how many of the other drivers on the road are good drivers. And it was a lot, lot lower. Now, why was that? In fact, why is that? I think we probably get a similar response here. It's because we judge others by our own values. One person says she is a good driver because she obeys all the traffic laws. Another driver says it's because he hasn't had any accidents for a long time. He's a good driver. Another driver is good because he can drive fast without getting tickets and without having accidents. He's a good driver. Another driver is a good driver because he is considerate of other drivers. I'm a good driver. Now, the one who obeys the laws sees many who do not. And they're not good drivers. The one who is considerate of other drivers sees many inconsiderate drivers. And so his opinion of other drivers is much lower. But the point is, we judge others by our own values. And many times, we then judge others with a more negative brush than we do ourselves. So this morning, we're not asking what constitutes a good driver, but what is love? How do we define love? Sometimes we can see what something is by looking at what it is not. And we'll start looking at love by what it is not. Number one, love is not tolerance as portrayed in today's society. The way I would define the word tolerance is here. It's a permissive attitude towards those whose opinions Practices, race, religion, nationality, etc., different from one's own. It's freedom from bigotry. Tolerance, as practiced in today's culture, has become the number one requirement to be a model citizen. And intolerance or bigotry is the worst possible violation. Love can 
and often does masquerade as tolerant, permissive, non-judgmental, live and let live attitude. It is people not holding to any standard higher than to themselves, but rather what is pleasing to you, whatever you want, whatever choices you make, that's fine. That's fine for you as long as you do that for me also. And that is called love. Some say love actually goes beyond tolerance. That's only the first step. It goes to acceptance. I don't just want to be tolerated. I want to be accepted. You can tolerate something without accepting it. But you cannot accept something without tolerating it. And whatever you tolerate now, something that you are tolerating that you shouldn't be tolerating, you or your children will likely accept it in time. So you can examine in your own life now what you tolerate it, what you tolerate and put up with. Something that you think is not right, something you think is wrong, it shouldn't be there, but you just tolerate it, and you can just wait. It'll soon sometime be accepted. But love is not tolerance. Love is not sentimentalism. According to a sentimentalist, the dominant chord of human nature is feeling and not reason. And the gauge of your love is measured by your feeling or your emotion of love. If I'm, if I feel loving, I am. If I don't feel love, I don't. Now here's a quote. That I found, I love the way I feel when I'm with you. The way I smile when I think about you. To be honest, I love you. Really? That's sentimentalism, emotionalism. Many times someone asks me, how are you doing? And my natural response is to look inside me and say, well, how? And if I'm Feeling great right then, I say, I'm doing great. If I'm not feeling so good, I say, oh, okay, I guess. But what am I doing? I'm looking in to see how I'm feeling at the moment. This is sentimentalism. Of course, we all love to love without the baggage of feeling love, right? Now, don't take that. That's a tongue-in-cheek statement. We just like to will to love and practice love. How we feel is not important. In fact, feelings mess things up. Well, that's what the Stoics believed. They believed, among other things, that if your emotions move you to do something, it was not a virtuous movement. If you felt like doing something, that destroyed the virtue of your character when you did it because you felt like doing it. If you did it without feeling it, that's character. That's virtue. But if you did it because you felt like it, then it destroys it. That's the opposite of sentimentalism. I don't recommend that. Not in its full But love is most times associated with emotion, but love is not sentimentalism. Love is not lust. The classic statement of a young man to a young girl is, you would love me, you would do what I want you to do. That is absolute garbage. Lust is Being in a relationship for what I can get out of it, not for the good of the other person. Lust will use the other person for personal pleasure or advancement. Lust is self-centered, and love is not lust. So what is love, we might say? We can tell really easy what it's not, but what is it? 
Love is a duty. Love is commanded. Love is prescribed. I'm still not telling you what it is. <laughs> Think with me a little bit. You are sick. You go to a doctor. And after examining you, he gives you some advice to bring you comfort and assistance in your illness. And then he gives you a prescription. That prescription is to bring about the cure for your ailment. So we have an ailment in a relationship or a body. We go to a doctor and he examines us and he will give us advice how to maneuver the way forward. And then he gives the main prescription. It's love. Love as a prescription will cover a multitude of sins. Peter says, love as brethren. Be pitiful, be courteous. That word courteous, think with me, courteous. <laughs> Court. You know what that means, don't you? Win and bless. Well, what is the extent of our experience of love? Someone has said this quote. I found a quote. So I'll put down my sword and you'll put down your rock. And we'll try to kill each other like civilized men. That's not quite the answer, is it? Just because we're not at each other's throats does not mean we're loving each other. What is love? Romans 13. Let's just, you can turn one page over if your Bible's still open. Romans 13, verses 8 to 10. We have some statements here. 8. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love worketh no ill. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. You refrain from doing things that hurt or harm other people. That's love. You are careful when you drive because you love your neighbor. You are make sure your fences are strong and don't let the cattle get out on the road because you love your neighbor or into their garden. Love takes care of your neighbor. You do not dress to stir up desire or flirt or imply for the same reason. But this fulfills the negative part of love. You don't do this because of your neighbor. Let's turn, uh, it's the golden rule, but let's look at the other side. Luke chapter 6, we have some more definition of love. Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 31. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. That's the golden rule. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love them that love, love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have you? For sinners also do even the same. And if ye lend to them of which ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies. And do good and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great. And ye shall be called the children of the highest. 
For he is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. There's a few words in this passage I want to pick out as jewels in our study of what love is. Love is do good. Love is to be kind. Be merciful. To lend. Basically, one way to describe it is you slaughter them with your love. You kill them with your kindness. You murder them with mercy. Mercy and kindness and love. Christian love is giving to others those things that you would want them to give to you if you were in that situation. And it is so even if they can't pay you back. In fact, it is especially if they can't pay you back. That is love. Christian love is respect for others. It's mercy. It's charity. It's selfless giving love. So, now in a congregational setting. Let love be without dissimulation. Without dissimulation. No pretense, no hypocrisy, but sincerely. How is that possible? To love that way and to love Let me see if I can express my heart here. We all are going to have feelings about each other. And those feelings aren't the same for everybody in this room. You can even let your mind go on different people. How can you... um, Let's see that the second part of this verse is... Uh, what we're studying this morning. Let me find it again. Be kindly affectionate one with another. Kindly affection has to do with your attitude of heart. And how can you do that without hypocrisy? Because you might not feel it at the moment. So if you don't feel it at the moment, you shouldn't express it because you should show your love without hypocrisy. But you don't feel it. Let's read verses 12, chapter 12 rather, verses 1 to 3. Because the key to if we want to consider this a journey... For this year, it is going to be a journey. So let's look at what the journey starts with. And it starts with chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And I'm going to read them. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed By the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. A few phrases... How is it possible these verses as a foundation and an experience of our life is the foundation for this to be a possibility of loving without dissimulation? And I'm going to pick up a few words out of these. It's a living sacrifice. Holy. Not conformed to the world, but transformed. Having a renewed mind. Not thinking highly of ourselves and thinking soberly. 
There is little that can be done by the way of directly increasing either the fervor of our love or the honesty of our, its expression. There's little we can do directly. You can't decide, so I am going to be more fervent in my love for him or her, and I'm going to do it without hypocrisy. There's nothing you can do very well directly. The true method of securing both, though, is to be growingly transformed by the renewing of our minds and growingly to bring our whole selves under the melting and softening influence of the mercies of God. That is the pathway. It's a swollen self-love of thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, which impedes our love our flow of love to others. And it is in the measure in which we receive into our mind the mind that was in Christ Jesus, if you go to Philippians, the mind that was in Christ Jesus and look at men as he did, that we shall come to love them all honestly and purely. This is basic Christianity. And if we miss it, we miss almost all of it. And when we have it, we have the basics of what we need. This is the opposite. Usually when we are in conflict and we don't want to resolve it, what do we do? Well, we recruit others to join us on our side. And we will speak bad words cursing rather than blessing of that person. You can plan on it. At first, it may seem that we will try to get people on our side because we want them to empathize with us. We want their empathy. We're struggling with this thing, so we want to get their empathy. But ultimately, we generally seek to draw others to speak evil words about the person. We do it, probably many of you do it, as well as I. So plan on it. It's probably going to happen this year in your life. It's probably going to happen. that Someone is going to come to you with the empathy of a difficult relationship, but in the end result, it will be a party. So it's going to happen. To you, what are you going to do when it comes to you? What are you going to do when I come to you with it? Refuse to slander or curse. Rather say something kind about that person. Love, let love be without dissimulation. Now we come to the love that can hate. And by the way, the title of the message is Love and Hate. We come to the love that can hate. Abhor that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. Now, this abhor, evil, cleave to good is right in the middle of two exhortations to love. And I say, now what is the context here? How, how does this work? Why is this abhorrence of evil right in the middle of two exhortations to love our brothers and sisters? Love always requires hate. If you love your child, you will hate the cancer that causes its destruction. If you love your wife, you will hate that which destroys your marriage and your relationship. If you love your brothers and sisters, you will hate the gossip that tears it down. In one of my stored away sayings, I found this statement. Love is selective and aggressive. There's actually a fairly major disagreement going on right now in the evangelical world. 
there's a mega pastor in his desire to reach the unchurched and, and also those that are offended or hurt by churches, says that he believes in certain foundational Bible doctrines, but he doesn't require those that he teaches to believe it. He thinks they are unimportant enough that he doesn't require his people to believe it. He would say the resurrection is the focus and the power of the gospel, and that's what you got to believe. Many of the other cardinal, you don't have to believe them. There was a blogger who called him out publicly for it. After outlining his errors, he wrote, Mr. Preacher, please prove yourself to be a workman approved of God. That means studying and rightly dividing the word of truth. If you can't, please, for the health of the church, step down. The comments to this article that he wrote was predictable. Here they are. You should keep, this is one, one person, you could, should keep the correction private between you and the preacher. You can only see others' problems and not your own. You have no right to say a word because you don't have love or grace but law. So that will be a Pharisee, Pharisee who is also religiously confused. I couldn't see a simple love in action or intention. It is very sad. That is the comments that were given to this article that called out the preacher. Now the response from the blogger is gracious. And this is what he said. Part of what he said. He said, I write this because I do believe he is a brother. I do take him at his word when he says he believes these things. What I take issue with is the gradual slide that I have seen with him over the past couple of years in regard to issues of incredible importance. That while he affirms them himself, himself he seems to set that bar lower for those whom he preaches to. The difficulty in our current age is that firm confrontation is not seen as a loving endeavor in any sense. Yet some of the hardest words we hear are from those who genuinely love us. We know Solomon himself wrote that faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of my enemies. Then he addresses his critic that called him out this way, he said, in reality, he said, you are doing to me exactly what I did to him. You called me out publicly. You denounced me. You didn't come to me directly. You did everything to me what I did to him. But he said, I take no issue with that. He's okay with that. You are seeking to publicly correct me. Love can hate evil. We cannot cleave or join ourselves to good unless we abhor the evil. To detest the one evil and to hold fast to the other are essential for the purity and depth of our love. Evil is to be loathed and good is to be clung to in our own moral conduct and wherever we see them. These two precepts, the second of them, is ground to the first. The force of our recoil from the bad will be measured by the firmness of our grasp of the good and yet though inseparably connected the one is apt to be easier to obey than the other. There are types of Christian. Now listen to this. I don't want you to get it. There are types of Christian to which it is more natural to abhor the evil than to cleave to the good. And there are types of character in which the converse is true. <laughs> some of us are very good at calling out evil. And there are some of us who are very good at pointing to the good. And they are connected. They need to be. A.W. Tozer said this. 
He said, God is holy and has made holiness to be the moral condition necessary for the health of his universe. He said, Sim's temporary presence in the world only accents this. Whatever is holy is healthy. Evil is a moral sickness that must and ultimately end ultimately in death. Since God's first concern for his universe is its moral health, that is its holiness, whatever is contrary to this is necessarily under his eternal displeasure. Wherever the holiness of God confronts the unholiness, there is conflict. This conflict arises from the irreconcilable natures of holiness and sin. And this is still him talking. God's attitude and action in the conflict are his anger. To preserve his creation, God must destroy whatever would destroy it. When he arises to put down destruction and save the world from irreparable moral collapse, he is said to be angry. Every wrathful judgment of God in the history of the world has been a holy act of preservation. God's is love. And God hates evil. God is eternally righteous and good. There is always a danger that love shall weaken the condemnation of what is wrong, and the modern liberality of the world that we live in has done just that very thing. The criminal is to be pitied rather than to be blamed, and a multitude of agencies are so occupied in elevating the wrongdoers that they lose sight of the need for correction or punishment. Jesus is our perfect example of this, actually. When he was approaching Jerusalem on, on his ascent to the mounts and he was coming over the hill, I think it was at the, the Mount of Olives, he was coming over the hill and he could see down over the valley and he could see Jerusalem on the other side and he saw it there in the sun. And... He forgot his own sorrow, his own thing that he was going to face very soon, and he wept over that city, even as he pronounced judgment on it. He pronounced it's going to be desolate, but he wept over it. His loathing of evil was wholehearted, absolute, and equally intense as what his cleaving to the good was. While he loved them, he still hated that evil, and he knew it was going to be judged. So both in the harmony between them, in his love for righteousness and his hatred for evil, he makes God known and prescribes and holds forth the perfect ideal humanity for us. That is his ideal for us. To intensely hate what is evil and to intensely love what is good and be that ideal balance. And now the next verse. Be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. What shall we do? Pray? Every night, Lord, before I sleep, I pray the Lord our love to keep. Will that do it? Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other is the New Living Translation. Scripture can be either descriptive or prescriptive. 
descriptive passages of the Bible describe or relate what happened. Jesus one day was at a wedding. They ran out of wine. And we won't discuss what they turned it into. They ran out of wine. And Jesus told them to fill the pots with water. They drew it out to the governor. It was wine. That's descriptive. That's not a commandment for us to do, okay? We're not to go to weddings that ran out of wine and create wine out of water. Prescriptive passages are commands. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. That is a command. Be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Is that descriptive or prescriptive? It's a command. And you know what? It is commanding our emotions and our feelings as well as our actions. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. We all have visions, don't we? We all have fears. We all have problems that dismay us and habits that we struggle to overcome. And things that we are ashamed to talk about. We all do. I don't know some of yours. And you don't know some of mine. It's maybe because we aren't as open and honest as we could be. Joshua had the beginning this morning already. I know it takes trust. And I know there were some times I was not trustworthy. But if we could view each other with eyes of pity and compassion, then we could be an encourager. We could pray for each other. We could hear each other. We could try to assist and help each other. We could delight in honoring one another. What would a home look like if that were in full bloom? Full bloom. Every flower blooming. Of that kind affection and the delight in serving and honoring. What would a marriage be like with that in full bloom? What would a church be like with that in full bloom? And what can we do if it's not? Back to what A.W. Tozer said. God never asked you to do something that you can do without him. This you can't do without him. You know, it includes recognizing the own corruptness of our own heart. Why is it not that way? Well, it's not all the other person's fault. Understanding that it is not my brother, but it is me, Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And it is me going to the cross again and dying again. Dying to our own rights and our own will. And staying there or going back again and again. Until... You can love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. It's commanded. It's not optional. It's actually God's will for us for 2017. I don't know if we could make this, like I said a minute, a business focuses on one thing for a year. 
until it becomes part of the, how did I word that? Let me see if I can find that. It becomes a permanent change in attitude and behavior. And loving each other with genuine affection, taking delight in honoring each other until it becomes a permanent change in attitude and behavior. We may bow ourselves in shame and contrition when we read these clear drawn lines indicating what we ought to be and set them side by side to the blurred and blotted picture of what we are. But you know what? It is a painful, but it is a profitable task to measure our experience alongside the word of God, Paul's ideal of Christ's command. And remember that Christ gives what he commands. He does. Christ will give you what you need if he's going to command you for it. And that conformity with his ideal must begin not with the details of conduct or with emotion, however pure, but with yielding ourselves to the God who moves us by his mercies and being transformed by the renewing of our minds. So this is a new year. While this morning this message was about loving each other, it's actually more about the cross and yielding ourselves to God this year, allowing God to change us in responding to his direction so we can love the thing he loves and hate the things that he hates. So what are you going to do with your 525,600 minutes this year? Mine is about 600 of them. Are you going to draw closer to God? Are you going to come to God? Are you going to come back to God? Or will you neglect so great salvation and drift further away from him? Romans 12, 9 and 10. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. Now, I know that this message was a challenge to us this morning. I want to bless what is here. There is a lot here. I am the one who needs it more than any of you. But I would dare say that we probably all need to grow in this area. So that's my desire. May God bless you.